Health is a state of body and mind. Wellness is a state of being. We want you to have both. This is Channels of Health, the podcast giving you ideas and insights into new and time-tested avenues to health. From mental wellness and innovations in mental health to our daily lives and overall health journeys. Join your hosts, Patty and Damien, both founders of organizations dedicated to healing as they bring candid conversations and new information to you. Let's start the show. Here are your hosts, Patty and Damien. Welcome to another exciting episode of Channels of Health. We are, uh, well, it's early for us, but we're excited <laughs> to be here. How are you, honey? How are you? We're so excited to invite Callie into our Absolutely. place today. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Callie, let's just get right into the game today. Tell us what you do, how you got into what you do, and what you like about what you do. Great. Well, I'm thrilled to be here, and I am a genetic counselor, so I, I was originally going on a pre-med course in college, and I've always loved genetics. I got pretty into psychology. That ended up being my major, and somewhere along the line, I heard about genetic counseling and realized that genetic counselors are able to spend a lot of time with their patients explaining things. Mm. And they're able to spend a lot of time on genetics, which I loved. So that's how I chose the career path. And that's fascinating also because you were already in psychology, which is very important as a counselor. So you were already sort of in the right mix, I guess. Is that right? Yeah, I was. And and there are psychology prerequisites to even getting into genetic counseling master's programs. Talk a minute about that. The, the program, the, the background. Well, I didn't education? even know this was a thing. So like, <laughs> let's just start there. Like as of a week ago, I had never even heard of genetics counseling. So next thing I know in a week, because Patty is super producer, I'm sitting across from a genetics. So you guys yeah. are talking. I'm trying to catch up. What is a genetics oh, counselor? Sorry, Damien. Yeah. No, it's all right. You know me. But what is it? Like, I don't even understand you're counseling genetics. I know you're yeah. like talking to people, but what do you do in an average day? You're, you're not alone, Damien. I get asked all the time, what is that? What yeah. do you do? Um, well, so back to the graduate school question, the graduate programs are two year training programs. They're often masters of science in genetic counseling, a specialized master of science okay. or in human genetics. And a lot of the courses have to do with molecular genetics, human genetics, genetic diseases, counseling, ethical issues in in genetic testing and research. And then there's a large clinical component of genetics counseling school where you're seeing patients with a supervisor over your shoulders, Mm -hmm. seeing everything you do and giving you feedback. What I do, what, what generally genetic counselors do are talk to individuals and families about their genetic risk of disease. And that could be in a number of contexts. So a large portion of our genetic counseling workforce is in cancer genetics. That would be talking to people who have an early diagnosis of cancer, maybe in their 20s or 30s, and or a family history of lots of cancer often at young ages, and, and they're talking to the family about maybe doing some genetic testing to see if there's a, a genetic mutation that we can identify if they have that puts them at increased risk for cancer. So nothing's happened to them at this point. 
they're just being forward looking and advocating for themselves sometimes okay sometimes the person sitting in front of us does have cancer okay the 32 year old with breast cancer you know why did that happen Uh, often that happens spontaneously it's not hereditary but sometimes it is so sometimes they do have cancer sometimes they don't okay in other contexts Prenatal is a big area of genetic counseling. So you're talking to a a woman or a couple who's expecting a baby and they might've had some type of screening that indicates a genetic disease, or maybe there's signs on an ultrasound sonogram that the baby could have a genetic condition. So a genetic counselor would explain to them what that means, how we may do further investigations to figure more out about what's going on with the baby and if they want to do that or not. Wow. And then what my work is now is more in the pediatric realm. Um, I'm doing right now, I'm doing all inpatient genetic counseling. So I'm working inside a hospital, mostly with newborns who have some type of thing going on. I don't want to say a problem, a problem, a medical issue, maybe just a physical difference that Mm -hmm. could be genetic or could be a sign of a genetic disorder. Okay. So then you are like, a liaison with the parents during this time after the baby's born. So between the doctor and the parents and trying to help the understand what's happening. Is that yes. the general? Wow. Yeah. Okay. We do participate in the actual evaluation of the baby, looking mm-hmm. at the, the prenatal history, the, how the baby's doing, the medical history. We often work with an MD geneticist, a doctor who's trained in genetics, who does a physical exam. And we're the ones who really talk to the parents about what's going on, what type of genetic testing may be appropriate, and get, getting their consent for that testing, and then often giving those results back once they arrive. Okay. I think a real important distinction to be made here is that there's a lot of counseling that is being done prior to suggesting the test itself so that people are fully informed. Mm. There's not just this rush to take blood or get a swab. There's a lot of conversation and counseling so that people are prepared to understand the results when they get it. Yes, and that is what I love, and that is how it would work everywhere in an ideal world. (laughs) If there are enough genetic counselors, there's this really interesting push and pull between encouraging access to genetic testing versus having that type of model where someone sits down with the person and explains things and gets their consent and then does the testing. And kind of what I mean by that is if, if we're trying to get genetic testing to more of the population that could benefit from it, there's not enough people like me or who are familiar with genetics to really explain that. So there's a lot of genetic testing going on without the counseling beforehand. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just how it is to increase that access. That's an interesting point. I'm trying to think of how we might be able to help. Yeah, no, you know how our minds think. We're thinking the same thing, aren't we, Damien? So how did this this career come about? Because obviously there was a point where there wasn't genetics counselors. So was it as a result of people just not knowing what to do with the information they were given? Like what was the problem that was cured by creating this whole path? The beginning of the profession was in the 1970s, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, it's been a very small profession. It's now rapidly growing. Mm-hmm. I think there are, are only about 5,600 genetic counselors in this country, but rapidly growing. And most genetic counselors, I believe, started off in pediatrics or prenatal settings. And that's when we could first do a test that showed that 
the baby had differences in their chromosomes, like a a condition like Down syndrome is caused Mm -hmm. by a difference in the number of chromosomes. So they could then find that out on a pregnant woman and there needed to be someone that they could talk to in order to understand what that condition was like and what options were moving forward. So all of these years, if there wasn't a genetic counselor, who were they talking to? Was it literally the doctor? It's like, here's what we found. Eh, You know, I mean, it just kind of like do with this as you will. Yeah. And some doctors are wonderful at, you know, providing that genetic counseling piece. And some doctors aren't as familiar. And as the knowledge of genetics has grown and grown and grown and we have a foul out, doctors just can't keep up with all of that information. They shouldn't be expected to. Yeah, I agree. It's just only so much that one person can be responsible well, for. Well, the whole subject hard for professionals to try to make it accessible to listeners who are not in the medical profession. Can you give us sort of a 101 college basics? Are people that are listening are intelligent? They're basic to listeners. And I, I tell my patients this sometimes. You know, this may be overly basic, but just so we're mm. is our, our DNA, our full set of DNA. And DNA is like a long strand of nucleotides or base pairs those are abbreviated a t c and g so we'll just call those the letters of the dna or the letters of our genetic code so inside every cell we have our strands of dna we have three billion letters of the dna in each cell now most of that dna material we don't think does much for the body it's historically called junk dna Mm -hmm. we actually are understanding that some parts of that do have a role, so it may not be junk, but the vast majority of those letters of the DNA don't have a a known purpose. The portion that does are are genes. So genes are like sections of those strands of DNA. And genes are what give the body instructions to make a protein. They encode a Mm -hmm. protein. Mm -hmm. So when I'm looking at the DNA double helix, the the ladder, a section of that would be a gene. Yes, exactly. Did not know that. All right. All right. We're off and running. We're learning. Everybody else knew this. I know. I know. I'm the only one. No, I don't think that's the truth. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) And those, those, those double helix strands are all stored in larger structures called chromosomes. So that's where the chromosome part okay. comes in. We all have 23 pairs of chromosomes, uh-huh. 46 total. See, this I've always learned what I call the nesting doll. Like, I want to know what is in what is, and that helps me always remember it. Yep. If I hear about it separately, I will never fully understand. So I never connected that. So the... So let's do a nesting doll. Let's do it. Yeah. We have the human body. Yep. We have the cell. Okay. We have the nucleus. We have chromosomes. Okay. Inside the chromosomes are strands of DNA, a double helix. Mm-hmm. Inside those strands are genes. Oh my gosh. We just zoomed in. Totally nailed it. Yep. Zoomed, zoomed in. in. And, and those genes help create proteins? Yes. To build everything that we are. Everything. Yeah. All right, this is a wrap. We're All right, guys, <laughs> well, it's been a good show. Uh, yeah. Okay, man. I did not understand that. So when you say there was three billion. Is that three billion of the ATCG or whatever that was? Yes. So is it three billion different, uh, how do I say it, three different versions of those four? Three billion billion. of those letters in some sequence. So like uh, zeros and ones can be organized in a million different ways for code. It literally is just 
in a different order? The vast majority of our, the sequence of our DNA is the same between two humans. Okay. Now let's talk about variation between humans. We're all, we're all different, right? So that's due to differences or variants of those letters of the DNA. So where most people have a T, I might have an A and that, that might not have any medical or physical outcome or consequence that might just be a change in me. Mm -hmm. That's unique to me or unique to my family or my, my, um, population, my ancestors, right. Yeah. Other variations might have to do with certain traits, how tall you are, what your eyes look like, you know, color of eyes, color of hair. Other variations have to do more with, um, traits that, that are wellness or health related. Like if you can taste cilantro or how your body metabolizes caffeine. And then there are the variants that actually cause disease. And historically we call those mutations or pathogenic variants. Pathogenic means disease causing variants. Got it. Man, this is good. I'm I'm not trying to be funny. I did not understand any of this. Well, hey, I, I think a lot of people do not. And unless you need a genetics counselor, or you're just kind of geeky or want to study it for fun. Or us. Yeah. Or, or us, yeah. <laughs> but no, seriously, I mean, I, we, we talk a lot about, like, I'm supporting UNC in their mm-hmm. eating disorder genetics initiative. And I could not really talk about it very intelligently. And so we needed... It's complicated. We needed Callie and, to come and you explain know, it. Educated yes. people have, have an idea of genes and DNA, and they understand that's your inherited material. Um, but when you get to genetic testing, genetic studies, it's so complicated that it's, I feel it's really important to understand mm-hmm. how genes and DNA works. You understand the testing that you're going through. So talk a bit about the testing um, for people who might be interested. How does, what would you want to test for? What would people, aside from somebody who you are already counseling, who you've just discussed, you know, oncology, prenatal, some of those subjects, for the average individual who wants to learn about their ancestry or their heredity or something like that, talk about what they might want to get tested for, how that would work, good ideas and not so good ideas about where to go. Most of your listeners are adults. Yes. So I'll, I'll kind of speak more to the adults. Yeah. Um, if someone's interested in knowing more about their genetic ancestry, there are consumer DNA companies that offer that testing service. You spit in a tube, you send it in. They tell you if you're French or have some African or Jewish or whatever. Right. Um, That's the best way really to get ancestry information. Coming to someone like me, we don't really offer that testing. It's not medical. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would recommend for those people. Now, I would be careful because a lot of those companies are not subject to the same type of privacy laws as medical companies or medical institutions. And they can use that data, you know, you, you click through the boxes, I agree, I agree, I agree, I agree. Well, you might be agreeing for, to them sharing your genetic data um, for good purposes maybe, hopefully, but still sharing your genetic data with other parties. That's really scary. We were talking about that the other day with really our guests and, and, <laughs> and I didn't think about that Me either. And, Me and either. So that's why I, I did want Callie to 
be comfortable talking about it, but to share that yeah. information that... And you're such a mature adult, because I'm over here thinking of all the sci-fi movies that I've watched. I'm like, oh, God, this is how it happens. <laughs> like, we all spit in a tube, and then yeah. we sold our genetic information, and then next thing you know, well, I've got twins walking yeah, around. Kelly yeah, brought it up the other day that it is unique to you. So they could identify Damien Skinner if they had a That's sample fascinating. of your... DNA. They can strip your name, strip your address, strip your medical information that they've you've provided them, but your DNA sequence That's, is unique to that you. That is your signature. I yeah. mean, there is nothing else more unique to you, right? Right. It's right. crazy. Bum, bum, bum. All right. Now my mind is going in a totally different direction. <laughs> so, so. so that's the ancestry part. So if there was an adult that was interested in more the question of what diseases am I going to get? You know, what am I at risk for? My first thing that I would tell someone is, do you have a significant family history of some disease that multiple people have had? Maybe that has an onset earlier than normal. And if you do, I would definitely recommend genetic testing. If you have a lot of cancer in your family, go see a cancer genetic counselor. Um, if you have a lot of individuals with Alzheimer's in your family, primarily if they've been diagnosed before the age of 60, go see a genetic counselor who can test about that. Callie, do you need a prescription to see a genetic counselor if you have some of those concerns? Usually not. Everywhere that I've worked, we accept self-referrals. Okay. Wow. So sometimes someone's insurance might require that, that they have a referral from a physician who okay. said this person needs to see a genetic counselor. But a lot of the groups that I know of do not require that themselves. So that's very helpful. Yeah, and kind of surprising. I'm honestly, I'm surprised that you can just so many things m with my parents, and we're always talking about people that we know that are going through ongoing issues. I'm just surprised that that's so easy. You know what I'm saying? It's, like it took me two years to get my dad in for some test, but that's good. Well, and there are <laughs> there are still a limited number of genetic counselors. Yeah. We're lucky to be in a big city. There's a good amount of genetic counselors here. Yeah. But there are more companies popping up that are providing telemedicine genetic counseling because there are not enough genetic counselors. If you mm -hmm. go to a smaller city or rural place, you're not going to be able to access. So there's more telemedicine options. Right. But 5,600 in the whole of our country, that's pretty small. Yes. I would have expected that there would have been more than that. But then to the point, we didn't even really know genetics right. counselors existed until yeah. recently. I mean, but it also is good to know people that are looking to get in industries that there's a major demand because what I love about this is such an interesting hybrid of hard science and people skills. That's what I love about it. I too. can tell it's yeah. your personality. Like yeah. you're a really good match between intelligence and people skills. You oh. know, um, that's, that's a unique fit. It really is. So to that point, let's talk about the psychology around the counseling and mm -hmm what you have to share with people and how they handle it without obviously disclosing anything you're not supposed to, but in general terms, what do you do? Put your, help us put our listeners in the room with you and yeah. some of your patients. Genetic testing can be scary because you might find out that there's something really going on that puts you or your family members at risk of a serious disease, whether that's cancer or a a heart problem that can cause early sudden death or in my work now, a lot of people don't want to know that their baby might have a genetic condition, a, a genetic sure. syndrome. Many of those genetic conditions 
have poor outcomes. Many of them don't. Um, so it can be scary to know that something is genetic. There's also, if, if a family comes in and, and we're doing testing to see who has the gene or the gene mutation that's putting them at risk for a disease, and one sibling has it and one doesn't, that one who doesn't often feels guilt, mm. um, survivor guilt. Yeah. So that's an issue too. Gosh, how many times does that subject come up, Damien? Survivor guilt and shame are the two most consistent subjects that come up in every one of our podcasts. Really? Regardless of the subject, regardless of the guest, it is wow. that, and, and I kind of roll that into shame anyway. Like, you know, that is a but shame I did, bucket. I did not target for this. I did not angle for this. No, I didn't see we're it. We're discovering it. I didn't see it coming, but seriously. We hear a, it every time. A bulk of our yeah. podcasts deal with a parent finds out that their kid is addicted to something. What did I do wrong? Yeah. Right. A parent finds out the kid has eating disorder. Yeah. What did I do? What did I not do? Yeah. A parent so, finds out their baby has a genetic condition that just happens spontaneously in the baby, yet the parents continue to think, what did I do during the pregnancy? What did I do wrong? Yes. Yeah. So that, that happens a lot in pediatrics where there's no family history of a condition. Parents are not necessarily expecting to need genetic testing. But if there's a child who has multiple issues going on that don't seem to be related to one another, they could be, they could have an underlying genetic reason. And can, that's when we would do genetic testing. Can you give us an example of some of the underlying, not the underlying issues, but the, what is being presented, what kind of issues might a baby present yeah. where the doctor would say, we need to get Callie in here. We need Callie to be discussing this with the parents to prepare them for what they might need to get some testing on. What kind, yeah. of, what kind of medical conditions might present? So maybe there's a, a baby born with a hole in their heart or a difference in the way the heart was formed, which is actually pretty common. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe that baby also has a difference in the way their kidney is shaped or is functioning. Maybe that baby has club feet or um, I saw a patient recently with an extra finger. Maybe that baby has some physical abnormalities plus things going on on the inside of the body. Once you kind of start counting up the, the signs or symptoms that a baby has, you start wondering, is this all coincidental? It, it, it really doesn't seem like it. This is kind of too much to just be yeah. a coincidence. Okay. And you start thinking about genetic testing. That's, that's helpful. Genetic conditions. And one of the things that is fascinating from a medical and genetic standpoint and difficult for families is that a change in one gene, mutation in one gene can cause a bunch of different Issues it's in like a, bunch a domino of effect, right? Body systems, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, when you're working every day, and I'll use the term kind of on a front line situation with people, uh, I don't think that's a stretch. Uh, and how long have you been doing this? That's probably a good question. About six and a half years. Okay, I mean that's a you've sat with a good amount of people in six and a half years, you know, and you've seen a lot of babies born. You've been through this process. When you're working. What you do is to help people accept what has happened, right? Now, there's other people working in genetics that are on the other side that are trying to figure out how to prevent these things from happening. I always find this interesting from my documentary background. Like, you're in the trenches all day helping people accept it. Where does your mind go on the other side of it? Like, do you get to see 
progress over time on diseases? Like, will you see, do you think you'll be able to see like, man, I used to have to talk to parents about Down syndrome all the time, but it seems like over the last 20 years, do you think you'll see that kind of start dropping off some of them? Does that question yes. make sense? Yeah. I don't know who it doesn't know. It's, it's very exciting. Okay. There, let me give you an example. There's a condition called spinal muscular atrophy, SMA. And the carrier frequency in the Caucasian population, I'm forgetting the numbers, I should know that, um, is, is high. It's, it's not uncommon to be a carrier of this condition, okay. and you can have a child if your partner's a carrier. This is a devastating condition where kids don't develop normally. They often die before the age of five, if not mm. much earlier. They're is a treatment for this disease now that's extremely exciting. So that's just one example of what I hope will be many where we're seeing treatment, gene therapies for yeah. these conditions. Yeah. And there are just thousands of conditions and each particular one is going to need a specific treatment. Right. So that's going to take a long time to get to. The more common the condition is, the more sure. research monies are going into it. Yeah. So the more common conditions will be Hopefully we'll find treatments yeah. first. I would just think with you being there every day, helping people accept and know how to look forward. And that's another question of like helping people with what they do next, you know, for the rest of their lives. And some of these conditions, you also get to see some of the, the shifts. And I've, I'm curious, is there a feedback loop in the industry for lack of a better term? Like, are geneticists getting information from what you're doing? Are you getting information? Is there any feedback or are these like two separate fronts of the battle? Unfortunately, I feel like it's more two separate fronts okay. um, in my experience. I think there's some of that feedback, but it's it feels pretty separate to yeah. me. Okay. Is there an overall governing body for what you do? Like, is there an organization that everyone belongs to? Or There's the National Society of Genetic Counselors that okay. a lot of people belong to. Mm -hmm. There's the American College of Medical Genetics, which a lot of MD geneticists and researchers and genetic counselors okay. belong to. So mm -hmm. that's a great place, a great conference where everyone comes together and talks about these things. Yeah. This is a wonderful segue. Thank you, Damien. That's what I do. You didn't even know. I had no idea. So <laughs> I would like to ask you to talk about ethics. Mm. Ethics in research, ethics in the results, and how they are transmitted to people. So whichever one you want to start with, but I would like for you to do a little bit of conversation around ethics. Sure. Let's start with ethics in genetic testing. Not research, just genetic testing. Okay. So if you're doing a broad genetic test, you can find a lot of stuff. And if someone has not told you the type of thing that you can find, you, that can be a difficult situation. So if you're doing a test of multiple <clears throat> genes, you could find that there's a mutation in a gene that you weren't really looking for or expecting. You could find that someone, you know, you're testing the family for a problem with the child, but you find that the family has one of those cancer predisposition genes or cardiac predisposition genes. That could be a surprise to the family, and they might not have wanted to know that. 
You can find out things like parents are related to each other, which happens. You can find out things like the father is not the father, and he doesn't know he's not the father. So there are a bunch of... Dad is not bio dad. (laughs) Dad is not bio dad, and dad thinks he's bio dad. Zoinks. So, so that's kind of where I was saying this was a great segue. <laughs> I hadn't thought about any of that. Because, wow. Because I would suspect that these organizations, these national groups that you belong to, would have courses in how you handle the disclosure or the non-disclosure or what do we do next. And it is such a gray area, Patty, that it's case by case. I, I think there are some, some general ideas about how to handle those types of situations but you're really feeling out each case and what what is best to do in that case. I've had two times where we've done a test showing that the father's DNA that he submitted to be part of the testing, which is great, does not match the child's. And in both of those cases, we decided to somehow find the mom individually, notify her of this, and kind of leave it up to her. But we did not explicitly say anything to the father that requires a lot of maturity and a lot of wisdom on the part of the counselor do you do that in conjunction with other people so that you get collective wisdom about how to handle this oh yes you talk to colleagues you talk to your superiors you often talk to an ethics board at a hospital Mm -hmm. so people are aware and and everyone's kind of advised each other of how to handle this and you you document i was just thinking the exact same thing you have to be very careful documenting what you said what you didn't say what you left out but i'm sure it at the end of the day, it defaults to a priority of what the goal here is, right? Yes. Like that's the hard line is we need to let them know that they have this situation. Maybe it's not up to us to let them know that that's not the baby daddy or whatever. Yeah. Know? Are you going to ruin this family? Are you in the midst of all of this genetic investigation? Are you going to separate this family yeah. or cause a yeah. disruption? Because if you are a marriage therapist, and you were getting these DNA tests, that's a very different thing. That's what the DNA test was about. But in your case, it seems like it would be weird to go, hey, while we were doing what we're supposed to be doing, we also discovered that you're, you know, married to your cousin. That might seem like a weird. Now, that's an ethical question. I'm not going to make any jokes because that can be a very dangerous situation. So in that case, maybe you ethically do need to communicate. Like, you guys know how close you are on the tree. Every time we do a test that has the potential to show that, I tell the parents. Even if I'm, you know, highly confident that they're not related. (laughs) I say, you know, this test does show if, if someone is closely related by blood. And I've gotten some surprises. There are also cultures where it is custom to marry within the family. Yeah. So we, we see For that sure. a lot right. as well. So when you tell them that ahead of time, do you ask them at that point, if I find anything out, do you want to know? I ask them, I ask them if they're related to each other by blood. I tell them this test can, can show that. I don't expect it to, but it, it can. And if that comes back, I usually do say that this shows you have some common ancestors Sometimes I couch it as ancestors. I was going to say, that's a very different ancestors. Well done. Well done. I caught it. I'm like, ancestors. Yeah, just vocabulary. That was well done. The wording that we use is very important. Yeah. Uh, And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but my whole life and everybody else has heard that if you are married to people close in your family, you get these genetic 
mutations and problems. Can you kind of explain how that happens? Absolutely. I've never actually understood why that happens. Yes. So let's think about a disease that you can be a carrier of. Let's say cystic fibrosis. A lot of people are a carrier of cystic fibrosis. You don't have the condition, but if you have a partner who is also a carrier, your child could have the condition. That's because we have two copies of every gene, and if you have a mutation on, on just one copy, you don't have the condition, but if you have a mutation in both copies of the gene, you do have the condition. That's called a recessive condition. Okay. Other conditions are inherited differently, but that's a recessive condition. We're all carriers of some rare condition. Sure. If you're marrying your cousin or having children with your cousin, the chance that you two are carriers of the same rare uh, condition okay. is higher. And it's actually a really interesting area for genetics because that has allowed genetics to discover some extremely rare disorders that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. I remember a family where the, the two children did not have pain. They were chewing, this is disclaimer, a little grotesque for your okay. listeners. They were chewing their fingers and toes to the point, you know, that they had to amputate. Dear God. Yeah, they were jumping off the couch, breaking bones. No pain receptors? No, no pain. No, somehow they didn't feel that pain. Parents were related. I forget what we, the gene was that we found, but that is an extremely rare condition. Thankfully. That, yeah, that the, those two parents just happened to be carriers of because they were related. How answer your question? How you, <laughs> I'm trying to be. Okay, I'm trying to control myself. I have so many questions about genes and, and now genetics. I, I I should say that there are a lot of um, families who do marry a cousin, a second or third cousin, mm-hmm. and their their children are perfectly fine and healthy. The risk might not be as high as people perceive it to be. Okay. That's good. Thank you. That's we don't want to mm-hmm. scare people either. Yeah, you know, it's good sure. to be informed, but um, ethics in research. That's your next topic. All right. <laughs> we're just throwing them at you. We have so we're like little kids. Well, I already warned her. I said these were the two, right? Yeah, yeah, you and, did. And she's prepared because we've already kind of talked a little yeah. bit about the subject. And so. gosh, there are experts in each of these areas that could just talk even so I'm much more I'm saving my than I. absolute ridiculous question for dead last. <laughs> I have a ridiculous question, so I'm excited. Are you oh, gosh, really sure you wait. know what dead last is anymore? No, no. <laughs> I always say that, and then there's like seven more questions. Last so. time he said dead last, we went for 20 minutes yeah. more, I think. Yeah, I was winding it down. Okay, fair enough. Ethics and research. So what pops into my head right now is um, justice in research in different populations. So this country has had a lot of discussion around race and ethnicity in Mm -hmm. the past couple years. And that's a, a really big topic, even before those discussions, in genetics. A lot of genetics research is focused in white, Caucasian, people of European background, So the findings of those research are not applicable to other populations or not as applicable. So that's one area. Another area that I think of is a lot of genetic genomic research is looking at your full genome. That's your whole sequence of your DNA. So they get your your sample, your blood, or your cheek swab, whatever it is, and, and they sequence your DNA. And they're looking for, like you are related to the genes related to eating disorders, for example. Right. Well, they also have access to your other genes. If they happen to see that 
you have a gene that puts you at a high risk of having sudden cardiac arrest, you know, in a, at an early age, do they tell that to you? Was that part of their consent form? Are they going to agree to look for and give you that information? Are they going to not look at that information? So there's so much information that you can get out of your genes that in a research context, the researchers might be able to see or find, but might not be able to disclose to a family. Wow. Pretty interesting stuff. Well, and the ethics aspect, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to ask a question because, and it's, it's a serious question. There are, there's a lot of platforms where specifically African Americans are talking very openly about not wanting to submit their genetics. Yeah. Are you aware of this yes. issue? Okay. So I find this fascinating on a social level that for whatever reasons, the distrust and everything is to a point to where there's a, there's a resistance to even working within things like genetics, right? From your perspective, anyone that's listening that might share this viewpoint, whether they're white, black, whatever, I don't care. What can you say around these concepts? Like you're there every day using this information to help people. Um, can you help people feel a little more comfortable about sharing their genetic information? And, and you've already talked about being safe and being careful. You know, these, I think if you go online and you send your spit somewhere, that might be a little concerning. But if you're walking into a place, which we're not naming on purpose, but you work in a, a very large, you know, uh, uh, medical facility, what can you tell people that feel paranoid about sharing their actual genetic information? I first tell them that their concerns are valid right, and that right I'm on. glad they're asking about it. Good. I love when people ask about that. Good. There are some people who are, are just never going to give their DNA, and that's fine. I, sure. can't, I can't convince them otherwise. Talking a lot about where that data is going, where it's stored, how that institution or company handles that, do they share it, and what cases would they, is, is important. Mm -hmm. I've made requests to genetic testing companies um, to have someone's DNA data deleted. Some people prefer that. They want to get the test, but then they want everything I didn't know you could do that. cleared. Okay. It's, you can. You can in most cases. Um, so having a conversation with that person all about privacy and security and being honest about the limitations. No one is completely immune to hacks. Sure. So, you know, I can never tell someone that your DNA data is 100% secure. Right. Right. I love that that was your answer because a lot of people will be like, oh, it's secure and we got double blah, blah, but exactly. You know, and, and I feel like a lot of times people will lower their defenses once people are just honest about, yeah, you might be exposed. Totally. I mean, yeah. AI could kick in here at some point and be like, oh, we got everyone's genome and, you they know. They expect you to convince them and then right. they, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. So I, I love your, your honesty about that. And it, it also ties in, and I know I'm going into another sensitive subject. I'm doing this on purpose. Um, can you explain for me, I'm sure everybody else listening completely understands this. What is the difference between DNA and RNA? Can you explain that for me? Yes. So DNA is what is inside the nucleus okay. of the cell. Okay. That's that double helix. Earlier <clears throat> I said that our genes, those sections of DNA encode proteins or make instructions for proteins but I skipped a few steps. And RNA is in between those two steps. Oh, okay. So 
RNA is a DNA-like molecule that's not double-stranded that goes outside of the nucleus to then actually encode the protein. Wow. Okay. So is it possible for... Can you, can you cause your DNA and your RNA to mutate after you are born? I know this is a crazy question, but can you, can you take shots? Can you take vaccines? Can you be exposed to gamma rays? <laughs> can these things actually alter your DNA and RNA? Yeah, so sunlight damages DNA. Okay. That can cause cancer. Maybe other things that I okay. don't know about. Um, your DNA naturally gets damaged, makes errors, and, and stays that way. As far as shots or, or you actively doing something mm -hmm. to change, I can't really think of anything. Okay. Um, I don't want to get into COVID mRNA vaccines because I just feel like I'm not expert enough right. to, to chat about that. Right. And my, my question in going into any of that is I've, you know, you hear all these things on all your social platforms and you hear these terms and you're like, oh yeah, RNA, that's part of the DNA. But I don't think most of us actually know what these terms really are, yeah. you know? And so just getting clear on what they are, I didn't know the RNA comes out separate of the DNA. I didn't know all that. That's really cool. We are going to be listening to this recording over and over again. Yeah. yeah. Just so that we can get it. Very educational. And understand it. Before I ask my ridiculous question, did you have any sincere, real questions? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Before mine. Well, now you now you make me curious. I know. I know. Me too. But uh, mine's going to sound very boring since you've oh, already, I bet you've it's already awesome. given the the warning awesome. that yours is wonderful. Um, explain to the listeners the difference between ethnicity, ancestry, and the other subjects that oh, sometimes awesome. and race that Great can be question. confusing. So this is something I've tried to learn more about and I am not an expert on. Those terms, race, ethnicity, and ancestry are fluid. They don't have a specific definition. So my best understanding from experts that I've kind of listened to is that race often has to do with certain physical characteristics, color of your skin, shape of certain features of your face, and it's often a socio-political mechanism mm -hmm. for classifying people. And that's socially charged. You know, we often, right. uh, sometimes we, I avoid the term race because it, it's, it invokes, you know, right. racism and, and right. those things. Ethnicity, I think of as more cultural. Um, your, what you eat, your religion. I think of that as someone defining themselves in a more cultural way. And of course that has, um, overlap with physical characteristics sure. and where, where you're from too. Your ancestry is more your direct lineage, your direct genetic lineage. So that's where genetics plays in the most. What variants in your DNA can we see that we know come from, an African population, an Ashkenazi Jewish population, an Asian population. Right. So ancestry is more your genetic lineage. Beautifully said. Yeah, oh, really gosh. well said. Thank you. That was you. You knocked it out of the park. Yeah. thanks, Callie. You're that was too really kind. Good. It's awesome. Okay, on to the ridiculous. Here now, we go. I'm Drum nervous roll. Now. All right. Now I have <laughs> asked this question, and I she answered it, but she told me I couldn't ever state. But you know who I'm talking about. I've asked someone who works in the genetic field this question. 
when people are born with strange things, whether it's uh, physical, mental, or whatever, and we haven't really, you know, we don't have time to talk about the mental aspects, like mm-hmm. mental illness and genetics yeah. and all that. It's another huge, fascinating. Totally. Yeah. But one of the things that I've always wondered and other people have is, you know, are, is there a chance that any of these things at this stage are just humans evolving, right? I want to be careful. I don't, I'm not saying an offensive thing. For example, an easy one is some people talk about ADD or ADHD actually being an evolutionary trait in that, you know, a couple generations from now, everyone is going to have that, and it's the new norm. Do you ever see anything in your space, and what's your personal view on this? Because this is everything. I'm a filmmaker. You're talking about X-Men. You're talking about mutants. You're talking about, and what people don't realize is, all those stories were written from the concept that the things that are wrong with us are us actually evolving and there's going to be a day where that's what we really are. Crazy question, I know, but what are your thoughts? Because I've heard the answer from some other people and it kind of blew my mind. I want to hear the answer from the other people. Yeah, I'll tell you afterwards. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So, <laughs> what did they say first and yeah. then I'll tell yeah. you? Yeah, can I yeah. talk to them? And yeah. they're probably more expert on that. Um, I'm not an evolutionary biologist no, or geneticist. No, I, I understand. My initial thought is that what I see is rare and is not part of evolution. Okay. It's something that... It's true disease. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, I've done, and this is just personal stuff, I've done some reading that babies are being born with smaller mandibles, mm-hmm. you know, lower jaws, for example, and more kids are having sleep apnea, you know, it kind of Pushing if your back jaw there. is smaller, your airway can be a little more small or blocked, mm-hmm. and more kids are having trouble with that. Is that an evolutionary thing? Why are more kids being born with that? Does that have to do with nutrition right. and how we eat, which is a little different than evolution? Mm-hmm. So my basic answer is no. What right. I what I see is is not. Which evolution. would make sense considering what you do all day, every day. You're not seeing anything that is evolution. It's the disease that we're trying to stop. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Um, yeah. So interesting question. I know. Very, very cool stuff. To and think I saved about. it for the end. Um, yeah. the, the person that I talked to just a few weeks ago about this, after they stopped laughing, after I asked my question, <laughs> uh, she said from her standpoint that absolutely almost on a weekly basis, they see things that they just kind of look at each other and they're like, well, that's evolution. Like we literally wow. can see evolution in a Petri dish. That's my word my term. But she's like, over time, as we're doing research, we can, we can see things that probably a hundred to 200 years now is going to be evolutionarily widespread, you know? Um, and that got my mind, you know, Oh my gosh. I haven't slept since then, man. I'm writing comic (laughs) books. Yeah. So it's fascinating. Now, uh, I think a good question for our listeners in, in ending is anybody that does have um, a lot of family issues, a lot of things that they know, how do they go? Like they're, they're listening right now. They're like, Oh my God, my whole family's had heart failure or whatever. Where do they go to find Google what you do? (laughs) I love it. Google, go, go to Google and type in Dallas genetic counselor, cancer, Dallas genetic counselor, you know, whatever it is in your family, add your thing on the end. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully one of the medical institutions in your city comes up and there's a group of genetic counselors that you can go see in person. Okay. That's the best. Okay. Um, you could also Google telemedicine genetic counseling and you can find some companies, genome medical is an example of a great company that's doing 
telemedicine okay. genetic counseling services. Awesome. So I would just search. I would ask doctors if they know of referrals. Sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. I would ask around okay. and, and use Google. <laughs> awesome. Always yeah. our friend Google. Oh, Good advice. Yeah. Yep. You got any other questions? No, I'm good. I, I thank you, Callie. I'm really, truly, genuinely appreciative because I know you shed a lot of light. This was so fun. I got to speak about what I love doing and, and share about genetics, which I hope more people understand. So thank no you doubt. so much After for today, me. I'm sure that there are a lot yep. more people that understand it. Yep. And if we have questions as genetics evolves. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at that, <laughs> marketer. We can invite you back because we would love to have you come back and help us understand more of your subject. Thank you yep. so much. Appreciate it. Well, listeners, we thank you for uh, being with us today. I always want to remind you to go to channelsofhealth.com to listen to the rest of our episodes, and we will see you in the next podcast. Thank you for listening to Channels of Health. We're so glad you've joined us today. To find out more about our mission and to connect with Channels of Health, go to www.channelsofhealth.com. And you can email us directly at info at channelsofhealth.com. We look forward to our next episode with you. Until then, be well.